you know, you can have all different types of, of cultures in a company. There's traditional cultures, there's, you know, innovative, you know, kind of cultures, but mine was more about leadership. I wanted to help my team become future leaders, and they did, of other RV companies or other RV divisions. Your business is not a pyramid. It's a round table where every voice should matter. You're listening to the Culture Camp Podcast, where we believe that if you build your dream team, anything is possible. Tune in each week to hear from an amazing lineup of athletes, CEOs, founders, and more who have created winning cultures in their organizations. Each will share the secrets to creating a culture in your business that will lead you to thrive. Here is your host, Jason Haugen. All right, welcome to another episode of Culture Camp where we have my man, Scott Degnan, the former president of Winnebago Industries and now the business owner and entrepreneur of RV Business Solutions. Scott, welcome. Hey, thanks, Jason. Happy to speak with you. Hey, thanks so much. It really means a lot, man. I really, really respect the heck out of you. And, um, you know, we've had a really good relationship the um, past yeah. couple of years and just really appreciate you coming on. My pleasure. I, I feel the same way about you. I think you're growing a great, a great company. You're surrounding yourself with good people. Seem to be building a good team, and happy to happy to be a small a small part of what you're trying to build and accomplish there. So yeah, thanks. Happy to happy to join you. Awesome, man. That means a lot. So I know you know you have this awesome you know uh, career in the RV industry, but how did you get to the RV industry? I think it's so interesting because people all that's the number one thing people ask me is you know how did I get in the RV industry? What the heck? It's so random. So right, you know, go back to I guess how you got started and and then worked your way up to the president of the toll yeah. Division. Yeah, no, I, I will. And it always is interesting, especially in the RV space. Uh, everybody has a fun, unique story, and mine's probably no exception. So I uh, grew up in Southern California, and that was the home of, at the time, the largest uh, RV manufacturer was Fleetwood. And Fleetwood, back in the day, had 40% market share and motorhomes, towables. They were also a manufactured housing company. But I grew up in, in Southern California and, and uh, in, in the Riverside area. And actually tried to, out of college, so anyway, growing up, many of my friends, dads, and moms worked at Fleetwood. So I knew this big company, but, you know, heck, I, I thought I was going to be a you know, golfer, make, play golf for a living. So I didn't really care about that. So when I went to college, after college, I, I tried to play golf professionally, and I had some sponsors. Back then, you know... <laughs> Unlike today, there wasn't, you know, the Nikes of the world and all these companies that would give you money as an up-and-comer. Uh, so you had to hit up kind of friends and family. And so right. some of some of my buddies' uh, parents that were members of a country club that I played at uh, helped sponsor me. And some of these guys worked for Fleetwood. And after a couple of years, uh, they saw that I basically sucked at golf. <laughs> Not really, but at that level, I, I wasn't competitive enough. And so then they said, you know, hey, why don't you come work for us? And we'll show you what an RV is all about. And that's how I got into the RV business. I, I tried to do it one, you know, make a career one way, but I got to know these guys. I think they liked me as a person, at, you know, you know, barely, you know, barely out of college and went to work for Fleetwood and just kind of, I worked for Fleetwood for I don't know, 17, 18 years, then tried to start my own uh, manufacturing company. And I learned a lot at Fleetwood and we, Jason, we could probably talk about that in a little bit, what I, what I learned about you know, public companies, company culture, building teams, uh, highly effective teams, uh, dysfunctional teams, cohesive teams. Uh, there were a lot of different teams within the, you know, Fleetwood at that time. 
Um, but anyway, after Fleetwood, I tried to start my own RV manufacturing company with a couple of partners. Uh, that was in the 2008, 9, 10 timeframe. Obviously, it was a horrible time for our economy. We were well undercapitalized, uh, didn't make it, got recruited to, by Winnebago in 2011, went to work uh, just after just after the first of the year in 2012 for Winnebago as vice president of their motorhome division and uh, spent five years there and then took over as president of the total division in Indiana and spent almost five years there before retiring from Winnebago to start my own basically RV consulting company. Take all that I've learned, all the contacts that I've developed over the years and put it to use for myself, you know, mid fifties and wanted to kind of try to build my own legacy, my own wealth and, uh, and go from there. So that's in, you know, three minutes, that's kind of my RV career and how I got started in the RV business. Uh, like a lot of people, it's, it's not a traditional maybe way that you go into a career. I don't think there's a college course on how to be an RV executive. I love business and sales my background and you know all my college education was in business management so I at least got to put that to good use and but there's really no substitute for you know hands-on experience working around good and bad teams good and bad managers good and bad leaders to really build your own kind of idea of this is how I want to run my company my team build my culture and, you know, kind of our, our, who, you know, what are the values that we believe in until you really go through it? It's hard to experience it. Um, yeah. Let's go back to when you very first got in the RV industry. I know you love golf yeah. and, you know, I've heard you're a killer on the golf course and I haven't yet been able to go out there on the, on the golf course with you. I've been we practicing, I've been practicing <laughs> uh, so I can get my, my, my score down so I can match you. Um, but was it a really hard transition? Talk about the transition I guess mentally, because there's a lot of people out there that think that they're, you know, growing up, um, they think they're going one way, they graduate college or they get into college, they think they're going one way. And then all of a sudden, yeah. boom, life takes a turn. How was that transition going into Fleetwood? Yeah, no, great, uh, great way to, uh, to, to start all this. It was, it was very difficult. So <laughs> not to get too psychoanalytical here, but I, I, I have one sister She's 12 years older than me. So I have a much, so I'm, uh, there's a big gap between me and my sister, much older sister. And my parents are quite a bit older also. Uh, my my uh, dad was 42. My mom was 40 when I was born. So I have, my, my parents were quite a bit older than my friends and my sister was quite a bit older. So I was kind of like an only child growing up. Uh, my sister was almost like my mom in some cases. I mean, I love my mom. She's great, but my sister was so much older that Sometimes she would like babysit when I was growing up. So golf is a very individual sport. I was very individual. Golf is an individual sport. So it was all about me and being an only child. I was, I was probably pretty selfish. Um, I thought the world revolved around me. And so with golf, it was just, you know, I would practice, you know, 10 hours a day just to get good at this sport. And so when that wasn't going to be my future, and I could have stuck it out, and I know this wasn't a golf question, but I could have stuck it out longer and, and tried to make it. But I saw a lot of friends, uh, a little bit older, that were these guys that were, you know, these 35, 40, 45-year-old, you know, golf guys that were still trying to make it. And it's like, they just didn't have a, a pot to piss in. They just, they couldn't make it. So I'm like, I don't want to be that guy. If I can't make it, I'm going to do something else, which is when I went to work for Fleetwood and took them up on the business opportunity. But it was a tough transition because it was all about me. And I wasn't a team player. Golf isn't a team sport, typically. 
high school, college golf is a team sport. And I love that, you know, and in pro golf, you get the Ryder cup and the president's cup. And those are team sports and live golf is now trying to put a little team in their, in their new uh, league, but it's not a team sport. It's very individual. So when you go to work for a company, especially uh, Fleetwood, when I went to work for Fleetwood, um, it was a fortune 500 company. It was a big company back in the day. And with a lot of employees, a lot of different teams and a lot of, so you're immediately part of a team. You're not an individual. And I thought and went in there and I thought I was all this. And, you know, some of the executives are the ones that brought me in. So I thought, well, you know, the top guys brought me into the company, man, I, I, I can't fail here. And I learned quickly that you've got to, you know, understand your role and your position, either buy in or buy out of the company culture. You know, if you buy out of it, then, then go somewhere else. I loved the culture that, that Fleetwood stood for and, and the values that they had, the, kind of their core values and beliefs. But it was a tough transition, Jason, because I was used to just fending for myself. And now I had to rely. I had to learn how to delegate at some point. I also had to learn how to accept, you know, hey, you know, boy, low on the totem pole, go, you know, go mop this floor, not necessarily, but just go do some menial tasks. I'm like, hey, you know, I, I was, I'm a professional athlete, you know, in my head. And you had to learn to be a team. So it was a, it was a tough transition, but a great education, a great education for my future growth and development. So what attracted you to Fleetwood? Was it their culture? Was it the money? Because obviously professional golfers make money. And it sounds like you did have your pro yeah. card or, you know, was, yeah. you know, so that's, that's, that's awesome. And that's, you know, you're yeah. percent of the golfers. So was it the money? Was it? this, this company. And, you know, before, when you were kind of giving your history, you said, we can talk about that. I, you know, I think that's a yeah. good, good thing to talk about. Cause you know, we're all about, you know, culture and team building. And I'm sure that you've seen good teams, bad teams and in an RV company, uh, there's a million different teams. I mean, you have the production workers, you have the sales force, you have the managers, you have the presidents, you got the executive right. team, you got the management. I mean, there's so many teams. And so yeah. what, what was that like? Okay. Cause I'm sure you could have done a lot of things. It sounds like you, you know, you went to college, you did, yep. you had, you know, you were smart. Yep. So why Fleetwood? Why, why did you pick them? Cause it sounded like, okay, you know, I see people in Fleetwood are making money, but there are obviously more manufacturers out there. Was it because it was in your backyard or was it because, you know, that, that's just what you want? You just fell in love with the company. Yeah. It changed what first attracted me. So first I went there and it was not for the money because I came in as a sales coordinator and I think I was making 20 or $21,000 a year, I think was the, was it. I mean, that, of course this is I don't know, 1989 or whatever year it was, 1990. So even back then that was nothing. So it wasn't what attracted me, but it's what kept me there. It's what kept me in the industry for the wrong reasons. And I'll, I'll share that in, in a minute. But what attracted me was when I first, I knew so many people because it was in my back, you know, backyard in Riverside, it was this big company there. And I knew a lot of people that worked there. I thought I respected all of the, my friends, you know, kind of dads, mostly dads. I think there were a couple of moms, but it was, it's a, the RV industry is a heavily male industry, which is not necessarily a good thing. I see that changing. It's way more inclusive now in a lot of different ways. But back then it was just a, just a, it's just kind of a big, heavy guys industry, but they all, I respected them all. They were all very good uh, family people. They were, they just seemed to be good guys. And when I went in and interviewed, they were all having a great time. They seemed to be having fun, not stupid fun or silliness or just goofing around. They, they were just, they seemed to love what they were doing and it was just infectious. And so I interviewed and I'm like, 
I had no idea. I thought you guys just kind of built RVs. And I didn't know that you, I didn't, I knew nothing about the RV business. I didn't know that Fleetwood manufactured them and sold them to dealers and then dealers sold them to the public. I, I did. I thought it was like, they just sold them directly to the consumer. I had no idea. So I went in for an interview and, and, and I just felt, you know, there's Jason, there's a vibe you can feel when you walk into a place. And I've always kept that kind of sixth sense or whatever throughout my RV career, when I would walk into an RV dealership as a sales rep or as a sales manager or as a, you know, a president of a division, whenever you walk into a business or a, especially an RV dealership, you get a vibe. Are they doing well? Are they not doing well? Do the people like working there? Do they not like working there? Is it a cool place to work or a bad place to work? So you kind of, and I, I remember that feeling, Jason, when I walked in that, man, these guys feel like they're on top of the world. Now, I learned later is because they're making a bunch of money, uh, but they also were a winning uh, team. You know, Fleetwood dominated. So it was like, it's like probably joining the, you know, the Lakers in the 80s or something, or, you know, maybe the Warriors, you know, in recent years or whatever. They're just a winning team. And I didn't know why they were winning, but I, I quickly learned that they were just, they loved what they did. They had really good products, but they, they had this foundation of trust and, and, and that came through. These guys all just trusted one another at, at, their, at, the, at, the, at its core level of its foundation. And so that's kind of what attracted me. I'm like, these guys seem to be having a really good time. And, there's, and, and I learned quickly that there's upward mobility within the company. So you could move up. And then I learned that, man, you can, you can make really good money in this and have a good time at the same time. So the attraction was they seemed to like what they were doing. Now I'm, you know, 20, whatever years old, three or four or something. So I didn't know a lot about the world. Plus I had a, I was dating my now wife. And so we were talking about marriage and stuff and I'm, I'm making $20,000 a year, but there was just a feeling that came through. I didn't know enough how to analyze it, what that culture was, but they seemed to be having a good time. I could tell they trusted and respected one another. You know, what I learned was with Fleetwood, what the culture was is they, they held each other accountable. They had, they had a certain level of accountability, but they did it in a non-threatening way. And, it, and, and they celebrated their victories. And there were a lot of victories. You know, in the RV industry, like probably most companies, there are measurements to see if you're winning or losing. It could be market share. It could be stat surveys. It could be whatever to see if you're winning or losing. And they were, they were winning more than losing by a long margin. So that, that helps, I think, keep it positive. But Jason, I, sorry, a long answer to your very short question. It just felt like the, these guys got along, had fun, and, and were building something special. And I just wanted to be part of something special. I was a competitor. I was an athlete, you know, or golfer, if you can call us athletes. But I was—I loved competition and I loved to win. I loved to win and hated to lose. And these guys won almost every day. I just wanted to be part of that. No, I love that, and I think that's super important too. Because you know, when when we're you know building companies, when I'm building a business, I always say, look, you're nonverbal, and the vibe of the when you walk into the business is, is huge. Customers can feel that. Could you feel that? Like right when you walked into a store, you look around and you're like, okay, yeah. these guys are either winning or losing or either even, even if they are winning, it's not a good culture. I mean, because there right. are some winning teams out there with bad culture, I believe. And so you, you feel like you could, yeah. you, when you walk right when you walked in, you could be like, okay, this is, you know, this needs some help or this needs some work. Yep. And I use that same thing. So I got promoted a bunch of times at Fleetwood. I started as a sales coordinator, which is the lowest kind of position, unless you're on the production line, but the lowest kind of management or upward 
mobile position you could find. And then I, I got promoted about every two to three years on average. I got promoted to, you know, a sales trainee and then a district sales manager, then a regional sales manager, then a national sales manager, and then, a, you know, a regional vice president and then, you know, a vice president. So there are a lot of different promotions. But the thing that I always, whenever I went into a new position, the first thing I would I would do is, is sit down with the existing team that I was either joining or taking over or, you know, helping lead, whatever it was. And everybody's on their best behavior when they come to a meeting. You know, they're either nervous or, oh, God, the new guy wants to talk to us. But everybody's, you know, looking. It's like an interview, right? I mean, nobody gives a bad interview. If you give a bad interview, I mean, swipe left. But nobody really gives a bad interview. Everybody's in their best behavior. They all write great resumes. I like to get a feel in when they weren't like during a break. I'd try to overhear people's conversations. What are they talking about? If they had to take a call and they went into the hallway, I'd like to try to eavesdrop a little bit on the call just to see how are they talking to that customer or that coworker or that client or whomever. Go to lunch after hours you know, go have drinks or something and try to see them outside of their, I'm in my perfect mode and really get a feeling of, you know, are these guys knuckleheads or are they really good people? And so I always try, cause that's where the true, you know, culture comes out And it. You know, it's the, the saying I think is true, at least in my 30 plus years in the industry, the saying is true. It kind of, you know, it starts at the top. It has to, the tone has to be set at the top and you can, to your point, you can set a hard tone at the top. You can just crack the whip and, you know what, you'll, you'll be happy and you'll, whether you like it or not, you're going to, you know, be happy here. You know, you can see some hard ass cultures that way. And ultimately that doesn't sustain. It has to come within. The people have to feel like they really are wanted and belong. And so that's the first sense that I would get whenever I met a new team or went into a new division, you know, because at Fleetwood, you never got promoted within your same uh, division. There are a lot of divisions. You had to move across the country or Whatever. I mean, my wife and I have been married 32 years. We've lived in 22 houses in 32 years. Wow. A lot of moving. Um, still together. Crazy. That's unbelievable. It is. 22 houses in 32 years. But we'd always, because you move to a different city, a different town, take over a different plant, a different manufacturing plant. And, and there was always these different cultures. And you'd and I'd try to find out, you know, what's the tone here? What's And the same thing with RV dealerships. The same with your stores. You know, it, when a customer walks into your store, that may be the first and only time they ever walk in there. It has to be a great day for them. It has to feel like, man, this place is not fake, but this place, these people really enjoy working here because you can see it. And we all see it when you walk into a hotel, you know, late at night or something. And the person behind the desk, if they're having a bad day, you're instantly like, oh, man, I, all of a sudden I'm not very happy. And you know, I'm already tired. I want you to, hey, how are you? How was your trip? You know, you, you want that positive feeling. So I think the feeling you get when you walk into a place tells a lot about what the existing culture is. And sometimes it's hard for leaders to see that because, you know, they all say, you know, that the highest monkey on the tree looks down and sees nothing but smiles. You know, sometimes you have to get out of your comfort zone to find where those cultural uh, issues might be. Right. So when you went to, obviously, you know, you were, when you got promoted, you were pretty young. Yes. So when you went and you, you know, you went your first meeting, you got promoted, you know, now you're the boss and I'm guessing it's people probably older than you. Yeah. What was your mindset going in and how did you get them to buy in? Cause I get asked all the time, I'm 28 years old and I'm pro I'm one of the youngest guys in my company out of almost 200 employees and people, I I believe I get good, good buy-in. So 
and people ask me this all the time. So how do you, like, what's your mindset going into the meeting? Okay. I just got promoted. I just moved. I'm brand new. I never met these people. Or maybe last night I might've went and had a drink with the manager or whatever to right. kind of get a vibe. What's your mindset going in and how did you get them to buy into your vision? Cause obviously you knew you had a plan going in and you're getting promoted for a reason. Yep. Uh, the first few promotions and the first few of those encounters that you're talking about engagements didn't, didn't go well. I, I didn't handle it the right way. I went in too apologetic, uh, humble, um, kind of not humble may not be the right term, but almost unworthy because yes, and these guys, and, and I went back and forth a couple of different ways. I'm trying to find my own, you know, the way I, my own approach. And so when I, my very first promotion, when I first took over a new team, yeah, I'm 25 years old, I think maybe 26, 25. And back then the reps, so I was taking over a new sales team, new product division. It was Prowler was the travel trailer line at Fleetwood at the time before um, Heartland bought that brand a few years ago. It was a Prowler division and most of the sales managers were in their forties. So sales reps back then in like the early nineties, mid nineties, even to the early two thousands, sales reps were usually a lot older. They made a lot of money they were just, they didn't want to get promoted. And so here's a 25 year old with guys that are late thirties to mid to early forties. And at first I looked around and I'm like, these guys, you know, are going to crush me and they're all sales guys. And so I was very, you know, kind of aw shucks and, you know, Hey, you know, and, you know, I'm sure I can learn a lot from you and trying to say all the right things. And it didn't go well. I didn't establish my turf and my kind of leadership. And so that was a, I, that was a that was a mistake, and and they, there was really no respect. Who is this young guy? And I came across very young and not ready for the role. But I learned throughout that two two and a half years, and I kind of grew into a you know our, our division did great. I traveled with the guys quite a bit. They understood that I knew what I was talking about. I set I set some you know some accountability and kind of some metrics that weren't in place before. They were just kind of able to do whatever they could do. We kind of put some some benchmarks in there, and that ended up. We got great results very quickly. And so because of the great results, yep, well, yeah, promotion, go to the next bigger division. Well, now, excuse my turn, but my crap didn't stink. So now I went to the other end <laughs> and I took over this team. And now I'm like, okay, you know, you saw what we did out here and, you know, we're going to do the same thing here. And I came across as arrogant and demeaning. And again, I'm now 27, 28 years old. And I'm same older group, but this is a bigger division now. I'm taking over a motorhome division, which back then was motorhomes were considered no nicer than tollables. I took over a big motorhome division and I'm trailer trash. I'm coming from the tollable division, but rocketing market share. And now I was very condescending and I learned how quickly that was a, a big mistake. So fast forward to your question. What did I finally learn with all my future promotions is to be I'm, I'm not there to be anybody's friend. We're there to have, to do business, have a good time and have it be light and, and have a good time and win. And, but my style, uh, Jason, of leadership and building a culture was one of, you know, a, a kind of a leadership culture. You know, you can have all different types of, of cultures in a company. There's traditional cultures, there's, you know, innovative, you know, kind of cultures, but mine was more about leadership. I wanted to help my team become future leaders and they did of other RV companies or other RV divisions, you know, and I would say early on that, you know, my goal is that you stay with us forever together. We're going to, we're going to win. We're going to grow our market share. We're going to make a lot of money. 
And you're going to be prepared to take over a division if you want to do that or stay here, or you can go to another company and take over a much bigger division than another company. I hope you stay, but you're going to be prepared to do any of those three. And so by being really prepared, and I think this is probably good for you, Jason, and at your you know, very young age and the responsibility that you must have in front of you, is I worked really hard at studying, learning all the ins and outs of the business. So I was ultimately prepared because they're always going to test you on for size and made sure that I never got too close to anybody to became really buddy-buddy because someday if you have to fire them, that gets really hard. <laughs> if you if you have really close friends, you know, maybe this is a little old school, but it got really hard when you had to, when somebody had to be terminated and you become, you know, really good friends. So I didn't, with a team, I never wanted to get too close, always establish kind of um, the, the, the guidelines and the boundaries, but also did it in a way that was, you know, very positive and, and uplifting. And, and that ended up, so as I was too far left, too far right, and I kind of, my meter kind of hit the center, that really helped going forward. And, you know, I was proud to see that when I would leave a division or go to another, you know, part of the company, that a lot of those uh, other people would move on and take over other bigger leadership roles, which wasn't happening a lot in Fleetwood back then. So that helped me the most, so who, did you ever get checked? Meaning like, you know, you're, so say you like, you know, like, you know, when you're at the beginning and you were a little almost embarrassed and I can relate to that, but it's like, oh, yeah. hey, like I'm your boss and I'm sorry, yeah. I'm an idiot. I don't know why I'm here. Then, then when they're right. looking at you, then, okay, then why right. are you here? I mean, it right. you know, doesn't make any sense. And then you almost go to the other spectrum. That's like, I'm yeah. badass. Right. I'm your guy. I'm your boss. Do it my way. And then you kind of right. come in the middle. Did you get checked? Because I've been checked a couple of times where like, hey, dude you're an asshole and right. you got to, you know, you got to, did, did someone ever check you or did you have, you know, someone up, you know, up above you mentoring you saying, Hey, you're doing it the wrong way. You got to center your meter there a little bit. Yeah. Both, both of those, the ones that were above me, they didn't, it wasn't that they came down and said, Hey, you know, you better, I, I sought them. I always looked for, you know, I always looked in the company as high as I could see within the organizational structure. And if, Fleetwood back then, it was structured like an old school company. There were a lot of layers, a lot of um, managers and divisional presidents. You know, there's a lot of different layers in there. So it allowed for a lot of promotion and upward mobility. Plus, they were cross-culture. That was part of the reason. I know this is a little kind of an aside to your question, but that's why Fleetwood brilliantly didn't promote within the same group because they wanted that culture. They wanted cross-culture throughout the company. So whenever you get promoted... You go here. This one goes over here. So they were trying to build this this great culture with their better leaders across the entire company. Because we had, you know, back in the day, Fleetwood had 17 trailer plants, six or seven motorhome plants all across the country. So there was a lot of movement going on back and forth. So I always sought out, as high as I could see in the company, the president, you know, I never saw myself as being the president. Like, I'll never get to that point. You know, know, so I'd go as high as I could and, and try to you know, ask for some mentorship or some leadership or some help. And in the 90s, there wasn't as much to be found. You know, you could read a few books and um, and that, but it really helped to have somebody within the organization. So I did find that. And I had a couple of people that helped me tremendously, but I did get checked. Oh yeah. Several times. What was interesting is they would always check me in public. Like if I'd be in a meeting, somebody would say something in front of others like, oh yeah, well, it wasn't so much, you know, in person which I would have respected a lot more, but somebody always say it in public. And, you know, I would just make sure that, <laughs> that I would talk to them, you know, individually after that. And, you know, you, you kind of have to stop it at the, at the moment, or 
I would almost make a little light of it if somebody just challenged me, you know, publicly, like in a, in a room with other people standing around, kind of make a little light of it and then just say, hey, can we just, just talk for a second and get a one-on-one and say, you know, hey, what's, you know, what's going on and try to get to the core value. Oftentimes I found it was more of an issue with them feeling insecure about their future or not liking the change or um, uncomfortable with a direction that's being set. And they, you know, it's, it's, you know, company, you know, there's, there's power in numbers kind of thing. So they would kind of check in a public setting, but I would never engage publicly like that because there's just no winning at that point. You're just, it's just, it's just over. So I would always do it in a response in a, in a private setting. And I had to back up my, my, you know, talk and walk had to be aligned because I always tried to have a environment, culture, uh, atmosphere, whatever you want to call it, that, you know, you, I need to know what you're really feeling. I need to know what is not working here and you are safe. If you say, look, this place sucks and it starts with you. Okay. I, I can deal with that. Let's talk through that. And let me find out what I'm not seeing. Let me, let me find that out. So you have to be able to I forget who said it, you know, Stephen Covey, you have to be able to pick up the rock and look at all the squiggly things underneath and not just pretend that they don't exist. Because, you know, Jason, as great as you are as running your company, I am sure there are some people or some things happening within, you know, the Haugen RV group that aren't perfect. And unless you're willing to go find those and allow people to share that without fear of repercussion, then, you know, then you'll, you'll never really get to that core issue. So I think by setting that environment every time, that you can, because I didn't, I had, and I also learned a lot from some bosses that I didn't like. I had a couple of bosses that were horrible. I mean, horrible. And I've, I learned a lot of what not to do. And the, and the one thing that I wanted to do is have open dialogue and say, you can say anything in front of this group to me or to anybody else that, you know, be respectful, but we have to kind of air this out or we're not going to get better. And a few times there were some people that took some liberties on me that took it a little too far. And then I said, you know what, well, I'll catch up with you a little bit later and we'll talk about it, not in a threatening way, but you have to be able to air that and have an environment where people are free feeling to speak up and not fear that they're going to get fired or demoted or something because they said something that they don't like. Man, I think that's so powerful. And people don't, a lot of business owners don't do that. And a lot of, so my saying used to be, I don't know what I don't know. And if you don't, if you don't call me, how am I supposed to know? So and I used to kind of just sit back, wait for people to call me. And if they never called, then okay. So what I started to do is say, okay, I don't know what I don't know. I'm going to go find out what I don't know. Because yeah. I'm just not going to sit here in my office and say, okay, you know, I'm just going to wait for the managers to call me and they're going to call me with a problem. Because most of the time they don't because they think they're going to get in trouble. Right. And, you know, what the culture we've created is we, you know, hey, I'm never going to get mad. If you, if you total the trailer, I'm not going to get mad. Just tell me. If right. you hide it, that's when I get upset. And, and, what did, and what did you learn from it? And tell me, tell me what you've learned from that that will hopefully keep it from happening again. Or exactly. And like, you know, if you keep doing it, you know, every day, then we got to right. have a talk and probably redeploy you out into either some right. other position or redeploy you out in the workforce. But, yep. you know, I think that's creating that environment is, is yeah. key. And, and going to my, you know, so say, you know, you're at Fleetwood, Fleetwood, you're working your way up. You've seen this culture. You've seen this amazing culture, which I think is super interesting, by the way, because most companies, um, out there, and you know, we don't have to, you know, specifically name names, but most RV manufacturers or mother companies, every brand is an entire different culture. Yes, and so it's very interesting that Fleetwood really tried to make all their brands the same. And you know, it's funny now that I'm thinking about it. We used to have an American Dream. I'm pretty Ooh. sure that was a Fleetwood. 
It was. Um, oh, that was yeah. part of the American Coach series. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So now, now that I'm, man, I'm, yeah, now I'm thinking about it, about it. I did say Fleetwood on the side of it. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. That was, um, that was our good, flagship. Good coach. You know, it was a, it was a good coach. But I think that's, that's, that's super interesting that, that Fleetwood used to, or did that. And, um, when they were doing all of that. So what made you go to, you know, why, why Winnebago? What made you go to Winnebago? We're trying to run, trying to get our own company going and it's failing and failing. So, so um, a friend that I met years ago was working at Winnebago and he reached out to me and said, Hey, Winnebago is looking for a new vice president for their motorhome division. Want me to give them your name? And I said, yeah, absolutely. Um, because I'd heard a good reputation about Winnebago. I thought that they had integrity built a, a really good product, um, seemed to be kind of purists in, in the sense that they kind of did things the right way. You know, Winnebago is known for building a great motor home. And so I said, yeah, give them, give them my name. And so the, the CEO of the company called me. I flew out, interviewed back and forth, and I fell in love with that culture. But it was a very different culture than, than what it was at, at Fleetwood. Fleetwood was a public company. Winnebago was too when I went there. But Fleetwood was a public company running in a very public company way. Um, you felt like you were part of, you had a good vibe, great market share, sales were through the roof. We, we had a great, you know, great bunch of teams, but you could tell you were part of a public company. Winnebago felt like this small little private company in Iowa. And that's where my wife and I moved from Southern California when I accepted the job to Iowa of all places. And, but we fell in love with that culture. Now their culture was very different. And that's what's great. There's not one type of culture. There's not one you know peg that fits in every hole. It's it's they're all very different. And this culture was very hometown, very personable. Everybody knew everybody. There wasn't a lot of talk of you know uh, market share and strategy and meetings and all of that. It was all very kind of us against the world. It was. You know, uh, Winnebago only had one manufacturing plant, and it was in North Iowa. It was, you know, in fact, it's you, people can look it up on YouTube as, as you know, monster factories, or fabulous factories, or whatever. It was highlighted, you know, ten years ago as being one of the largest, you know, manufacturing facilities in North America. It was, and everything was very handmade. Um, there were generations of people working there. There was, you know, dads, sons, granddads, grandsons have all worked for Winnebago in this small community. And it was infectious. It was just awesome. And these people were almost like they were part of the RV industry, but almost unaffected by Fleetwood and Thor and Forest River and all these other big companies that are out there banging for market share and dominance and all the rest. And Winnebago is in its bubble, just kind of doing its own thing. Hey, we're going to build the best motor home in the world. We're going to build it highest quality. Winnebago was doing what's called a drop test. And I watched it. Um, they would take a motorhome upside down and literally drop it to see if it was built strong enough. And it was, they were doing things that other RV manufacturers, weren't even other RV manufacturers were just more assemblers. They'd get the parts, put them together, send it down the road. And largely that's the way it is today. Winnebago was a true manufacturer with a lot of vertical integration, um, welded their own parts, built their own fiberglass, stamped all their own parts, all their hardwood doors had serial numbers in them. So if there was a problem with the door, you could go back to Winnebago and replace that. So not to make this a Winnebago commercial, but that culture was very infectious and I fell in love with that. And, but they needed the reason they hired me. So that's what attracted me to them. Jason was, man, these people really are passionate and love what they do. They just love building Winnebago motorhomes. What attracted 
them to me was they wanted somebody that wasn't part of that culture. They wanted somebody, the CEO at the time, Randy Potts, wanted somebody to mix it up because although that was a great culture, they didn't, at the end of the day, they just went home and did their thing. They never thought about growing the company. They were just happy to do their job every day and go home at all levels in the company. And nobody was looking at, hey, we're a public company, yet we're acting like a small little private company. Why aren't we growing? And so there was there were a few changes at the board of directors level. And they said, we want somebody to come in here and take over this company. And I was being you know, um, groomed or, or, or kind of put in place to be the next CEO uh, president. And they wanted somebody to kind of mix it up, to get somebody that has competitive spirit and actually wants to win. Keep what's working in Winnebago, but take it to another level to be more competitive out there and to get more aggressive into towables, get more aggressive into you know, looking at acquisitions and that type of thing. So that was the reason that I was attracted to them and they were attracted to me. And it was it was an awesome relationship um, right from the beginning. So it was early 2012 when I joined Winnebago. And that I drew on everything that I had learned because I'm coming in, I'm this California hotshot, you know, that's been at Fleetwood and started his own company and blah, blah, blah. And here's a culture that never lets people from the outside. They never brought in a vice president like this from outside the company. Everybody had been promoted. Every president had been promoted from like the production line all the way up. And so I came in and, you know, the first meetings, people are just sitting there cross-armed like, you know, who's this guy from California and what's he going to do to screw up this great deal that we have going? So that's another wrong story. We can talk about it any time, but that was the attraction. It was back to the culture and what they stood for deep, deep values and doing things the right way. I mean, these people would not send a production unit, ship it to a dealer if they knew there was one tiniest little scratch or anything wrong with it. It would, it was like ripping their arm off. They believed in that product so much that it was, and it was very American back then is when, you know, the NFL was starting to do, you know, throwback Thursdays and stuff. And it was all very about America, you know, and American pride. And it, it felt so strong there in Iowa, the heartland, you know, big American flags flying. And it was like built in America. This is something special. And it was, you couldn't help but get caught up. in that. That's awesome. That's a great story. When you got yeah. to Winnebago, how big was it? How much in revenue were they doing? They were doing between eight and 900 million uh, at the time um, and only in motorhomes. And now, now Winnebago's, well, they're a little over, there'll be about 3 billion. Uh, this year, um, largely, largely due to acquisitions. So in the eight, uh, nine, almost 10 years I was with Winnebago, I was part of uh, all but one of the acquisitions. They did one after I left, but their first acquisition was Grand Design, which is a huge towable company. It was a great acquisition and, and how that happened is, a, is an interesting story. But we bought Grand Design and we bought Chris Craft because our board of directors wanted us to become more diverse, not just reliant on just RVs. I'm not sure how much more diverse boats are, but it was it was a, a little bit wider platform. But it was that again, Chris Craft Grand Design had a culture that fit with Winnebago. Uh, Chris Craft, old Amer- everybody knows what a Chris Craft boat is, an American kind of iconic culture. And then Newmar, same thing. You know, very stated in the RV industry. I didn't know so that. their acquisitions. I didn't know that Winnebago owns Newmar. Yeah, yeah, Winnebago bought Newmar. That one was purchased about a year before I left. So that was 2018 or 19, I think, is when we got um, 
is when Winnebago bought Newmar. But here's what here's what now CEO Mike Happy does, which I fully applaud and think is great. Mike Mike is a big culture guy. Winnebago is a big culture company, and it's it's right at the top of the list. And he is very intentional on how he includes certain key members. So Mike did two things really quickly. One, he developed a key leadership team, KLT, a key leadership team. So it's usually about, I think about uh, 5% of the company, somewhere in that nature, you know, anywhere between, you know, four to 10% of the company are part of this key leadership team. And so there's a, a handful of people from different divisions you know, human resources, manufacturing, finance, sales, whatever, Malter company, and they kind of speak for the bulk of the company. And they all get together a couple times a year to talk about what's working, what can we do better, and to get benefit from some leadership training and that type of thing. Then he has an executive leadership team, which is usually just the leader from each one of the different divisions and his direct reports. And usually the, the executive leadership team is eight to 10 people. And Mike was very clear, and I love this, and I believe it completely. For As an example, when we bought Grand Design, I was the president of Winnebago Tolls, and uh, Don Clark was and is the president of Grand Design. Well, Don and I each had our day jobs, which Don's running Grand Design, I'm running Winnebago Tolls, but we were also part of the same team, and we were kind of competitors, but Mike didn't want the same type of um, company dynamic that Thor has, for instance, in their business model, Thor is more of a holding company. Thor encourages Jayco and Heartland and Keystone to compete against one another uh, viciously. And so they're, like you said, they're very different cultures that they kind of compete. Mike wants us, Winnebago Tollables and, and, and Grand Design to have maybe some healthy competition, but to ultimately complement one another and at least share in some, some values and, and what the company stands for. So Mike called it a golden thread. So our day job was to run those companies, but part of our compensation and bonuses and that were tied to the other company's performance. So Mike had to sit on this executive leadership team and we would share best practices, what's working, what isn't working, you know, different you know, market strategies or go-to-market ideas. We wouldn't really get down to product, like, you know, hey, you know, Scott, what are you doing for this product? And Don, what are you doing for that product? Because we wanted each brand to have its own identity and its own DNA, but the culture side of it, we wanted to be aligned so that when somebody thought of Winnebago Industries and they thought Chris Craft, Grand Design, Newmar, now Barletta Boats, Winnebago, that they thought, okay, this is what the company stands for. And it's sewn throughout all of the different divisions. So even though you couldn't get two polar opposite companies, then Chris Craft and you know, Grand Design the culture of the company is the same and kind of their core values remain very similar. And so that's what Winnebago looks for when making an acquisition is do they fit our culture or are they close enough that we can get them there? Um, and then let's have the leader sit with all the other leaders. So we're constantly getting together and talking about what's working, what isn't working and understanding that the competition is out there, not in here. We're not going to compete with each other. You can have some friendly competition and, Hey, Degnan, your market share is, you know, behind his or this guy. You can have some friendly competition and kind of some metrics to kind of, because nobody likes to lose, but the competition is out there. And that's totally different. I'm talking about Winnebago, obviously, but totally different than kind of the way Forest River and Thor approach it, 
which is more internal competition. And it works for them. I'm not saying it's wrong, but it's just very different than the way Fleetwood was and the way Winnebago is, which was more inclusive. And let's complement one another. And let's see if we can make one plus one equal more than two. How can we how can we have Winnebago grand design in our first acquisition? How can we have one plus one somehow equal more than two rather than you know one plus one fighting each other and maybe becoming less than two? So that makes total sense because I always wonder why, you know, a holding company or a mother company that has all these different in, in any industry, like I know quite a bit of them that promote to make their own bloody battle where it ends up tearing everybody down. Like, you know, right. we own, you know, eight locations across the state lines and we love healthy competition, even within right. that state. And even we got two different quote unquote brands and companies in the state of Utah and they're competitors, but at the same time, it's healthy competition. Don't tear each other down. At the end of the day, right. we want to get the business. So don't give it to somebody else, give it to ourselves. Right. And so, you know, it sounds like Mike Happy definitely believes in the, you know, rising tide raises all ships and he wants his company you know, Winnebago and, you know, all the ancillaries and everybody to win together. And like I said, you know, like, or like you said, healthy competition is very good because it makes you win. And he's creating, it sounds like a winning culture, not a, Oh, I don't care if I don't win, but that guy's going to for sure lose, which, you know, it doesn't sound like that's going on in Winnebago, which I think is super important. It is. And it also helps attract future employees. And, you know, we know that the employee world pool is changing Obviously, since March of 2020, the whole world has flipped and, and you know, people um, that are now graduating college or in college or even older, whatever, are looking maybe for different things. They're, maybe they have a different value set now than, than, you know, and we have to look at that when hiring people. But I think at the, at the root of all of that, I think people still want to be part of a winning team and a, and a culture that just that wins. And yes, everybody can say, well, I want more time off, more money and sabbatical time and freedom and all this. And, and these, these ideas and, and themes kind of come and go. And that's, and we have to evolve and change and be, you know, conscientious of what, of what is attracting really talented people now. But I think, I think you can go back way back in time, certainly to, you know, the old days when I started in the RV industry. And at the end of it, it is still, like you said, building a, a winning culture, like, like, Mike Happy is doing at Winnebago that starts to attract people and go, I don't know what they're smoking over there, but I want to be part of that. And that goes back to when I started at Fleetwood. I didn't know what they were doing. I just knew I wanted to be part of it. I didn't know anything about RVs. I wasn't attracted to, man, I could build an RV. Forget all that. That's fine. That's that's kind of the vehicle, I guess. But I just wanted to be part of that. And that's what Mike's building at Winnebago to be able to attract future leaders and future employees to say, they just seem to be doing things right, and and I want to be part of that. So I'm just repeating what you said, but that's what he is building, and I think that's a great way for you to look at you know, the Haugen RV Group and just say, hey, I just want to be part of what they have going on because it's infectious, and I can feel it, and people are talking about it. Right? Yeah, that's our that's our goal, and you know, I feel like yeah. we've done a, a pretty good job at that, and we've we've definitely had some people come along that's been great in our stores in Missouri and other and other areas, and so. I do think that creating that culture where it's like, it's like back in the day, the Lakers, right? It, they yeah. they just had a winning culture. When you walked yeah. into the Staples Center, you knew yeah. that it was, you, you were probably yeah. going to win that night. Right. And anybody in the NBA would die to be a part of the Lakers. And so, right. you know, I look at a lot, all business, a lot of business. I love sports. 
Yeah. So I look at a lot of businesses like sports teams because it's usually, you know, they have great relationships, but it's pretty cut and dry. You know, if they're not working out, they trade them or they do something and try to win. Yeah. But their whole goal is just to create a winning culture. No one wants to lose. People don't, right. I mean, people don't even want to go watch a losing team. So right. why would they want to work for a losing team? That doesn't really make sense, right? Why would they want to be part of it? Exactly. And with great sports teams, there's accountability between the players. I mean, you know, and you got, you know, back in the day, and I went to a ton of Lakers games growing up in the 80s and in Southern California, but you got Magic Kareem and James Worthy and Byron Scott and Michael Thompson and those guys, they held each other accountable. I mean, they would, you know, they would get in each other's face. They loved each other. They were a great team, but they held each other accountable. So it didn't take a leader. It didn't take Pat Riley or, you know, Jerry Buss or anything else at the top to kind of, you didn't have to tell them to do it. They, 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 that culture, they wanted to do it and they held each other accountable. And that's, you know, and that's how you've started a great culture, Jason. And you know, that it starts with the hiring process. It starts to getting the right guys on the team to begin with. And it all starts in that initial hiring process to build your interview questions or your interview style, or however it is that you interview certain people you know, at least if you're a very, you know, still a very young and growing company, I know you have a lot of stores and you're hoping to go to quite a few more, but it, but it, in the, in the next 20 years of how going to be, you're still at the very beginning. So you, my only recommendation or suggestion or advice, uh, unsolicited advice would be, you should be involved or somebody that you trust, but mostly you in almost every hiring, at least in, 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 that you can get to at all levels of the company. Yes, you have to be you have to let your managers and your other leaders, you know, make their own decisions, but you should have some level, at least at a certain level. And Mike Happy was, again, another great thing I learned from him. He was very involved in that, much lower in the organization than I would have thought of early on. He said, I want to see the type of people we're bringing in because it's way harder to get rid of somebody that's not good than just not hiring them to begin with and waiting. It's better to have an open position than a filled position with the wrong person. So, you know, you should be involved at a certain level down in the company to say, I at least want to have a Zoom call with this person before we make a final offer to them, even if they're not going to be reporting directly to you. Because that's where it all starts. No, I think that's awesome. And definitely creating that foundation of that that team. You know, because yeah. if your goal is to grow, and you know, Mike's is, mine is, you know, there's a lot of people out there that their goal is yeah. to grow. If your goal is not to grow, then I guess it doesn't matter as I mean, it does matter creating a great foundation, but you're trying to poise yourself for the future. And, you know, you're trying to hire this person thinking five years down the road or 10 years down the road. And you are a hundred percent right. I I think it's horrible. And I see people do it all the time where they would rather fill a seat with the wrong person than to just either let them go or not fill that seat. Right. And they're killing the company because you know, in your mind that that person's costing you money, then why did you do, oh, we just needed someone to do it. We're, we're struggling. We're doing this. We're behind. We got to do this. We got to do that. Well, that ends up killing your culture more than it does help winning because that person's sucking money out of the company. They're costing their, their person on their left and their person on their right, their, their fellow teammates money. And it starts to become negative because then all of the other employees are, why did you hire this person? Why did you do that? Why did you do this? Why? Why, you know, then they start to question you as a leader, which I think is right. not good. We you know when your people start to question you, that's, you know, when you have, if, if it's good, you know, dialogue, that's a good thing. But if they start to question motives that you're making or the reason you need to kind of check and reset yourself. And, you know, like we said earlier about that check, you need to be checked because if people start to doubt, you know, once people on your team start to doubt, everything starts to slow way down. At least yep. that's what I think. 
Yep, because nobody's going to push the envelope and they're going to say, how is this person allowed to survive? They say one thing, you know, they've got a, a card that has their kind of their values and all the rest of it, yet this knucklehead is allowed to survive. You know, Jack Welsh, and it sounds kind of harsh, you know, he was always, you know, quick to fire, slow to hire. Um, that was kind of his 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 kind of term. And it, it sounds a little harsh, but that's especially when you're in a new position. That was when I took over a new division or something, you're quickly looking who's on my team, who's got my back, who's going to buy into where we're going. And, you know, you, you, that's when you have to make your quick move. You know, when you take over a new a new RV company, you and your core you know, team that, that you trust, your trusted advisors and, and whoever you surround yourself with to make those decisions, you got to be pretty quick and say, you know, you know, these people are going to be better off somewhere else because they're not going to make the journey that we're going on. You have to do that quickly and then take your time to hire the right person in there. And it may take a while, but yeah. So I think you're on absolutely the right track and you're, you're thinking the right way with it. Get that started at that interview process through HR or wherever you go to say, we're, we're done hiring mediocre. We're going to take our time and find the true you know, winners that are going to help this culture go to the levels that we have envisioned for it. Well, in the interview, can't just be like, hey, are you good at doing this? Are you do good right. at doing that? Because like you said, everybody's a great interview. It's it's right. different questions and situational questions and, yep. and you know dealing with people questions. Because I always tell people, look, I can pretty much almost teach anybody anything. But it's the intangibles, just like being a good person in your mindset. That's pretty hard to change because you're almost changing someone's core beliefs. Right. If they believe that their job as a manager is to be basically a dictator and an asshole and they're just going to be, then I can't really change them. But if they have really good beliefs and they fit our culture and they fit, I can almost teach them anything because they're willing yeah. to learn and they want to, and they want that winning, that winning culture. If you read or seen, do you know anything about Patrick Lencioni and the ideal team player table group, all the books that he's written? I have not. I'll, I'll send you uh, some information on it. I've, I've, you know, I'm not a, you know, Peter Drucker and, and Patrick Lencioni. They're, they're kind of really thought leaders in, in leadership and company cultures. And, and so it's called the ideal team player. It was written probably three or four years ago, but he has a section in here on, um, on how to hire. And it's really cool. It's almost, a, it's like a three page a blueprint and you could apply it tomorrow. It's not copy. It's not, he doesn't have proprietary, you know, rights to it. I mean, he wrote it, but he's free. To, he's like free to use. You can use it whenever you want. And it gives some real situational questions to ask in the interview process that are non-traditional, totally HR approved, but really to get to the core values to see, is this going to be a great team player? Is this the ideal team player or can they become the ideal team player for us? rather than the standard interview questions. Because you're right, 90% of the people out there that go into an interview, they're not getting asked the right questions. It's in a it's a very uncomfortable yet familiar and structured situation. And he gives some really good stuff that you can use tomorrow and say, hey, let's start next time we interview to hire, let's go through a list of these questions and see where the answers come in. And it really gives some insight into the who these people are. A very interesting uh, questions. And I think, I think you'll get a lot out of it. So I'll, I can send you some links to that stuff. Yeah, no, I would love that because I think it's the, the funniest thing is, is there's so many times that I've had, you know, a few bad hires in a few situations and it's almost, I almost think of it like I'm a, I'm a human being and I just basically paid for a cancer to get entered into my body. Right. And I'm going to roll with it. And then I have so many people telling me, Oh no, 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 this is how you're going to get the cancer out. And then 
I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm going to keep the cancer in the cancer. We'll see if we can play with the cancer and right. see if we can help the cancer and mold the cancer. And then that, you know, I got people saying, yeah. no, that person's cancer. And yeah. you know, when, like you were saying before, when you have those relationships with people and you're so close to them, you can, sometimes those people are the worst because they're so hard to get rid of when you, because right. sometimes they're good people at the bar or good people on the golf course, but they're terrible in work. And yeah. You know, it's like, instead of saying, okay, you know, the doctor's like, okay, I'm going to cut this cancer out. And you're like, okay, sounds good. Boom. You're like, no, 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 no. Let's keep it in for a while. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to mess anything up. And then you, right. you know, it ends up being just a bad thing and, and can cost you. I mean, me, my personal self, it's cost me millions. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in different situations, it can cost you a lot. It can cost you good people. It cost me three really good managers and millions of dollars. Yeah. Um, this certain situation happened with me. And it's just, like I definitely learned from that. And I always, you know, it's a blessing and a lesson. And, you know, sometimes it's one or the other, sometimes it's both and definitely learned that that was a, a blessing that I learned it. And it was a definitely huge lesson that I will never forget. And I, I am, you know, all my managers definitely don't ever let me forget that one. It's pretty funny. Sometimes it can be immeasurable what it costs you. (laughs) Right. So after Winnebago, you know, quickly, we've been, you know, having a great conversation. Um, Sure. Is RV Business Solutions. So what do you do with RV Business Solutions? I, I mean, I've personally, you know, worked with you in, yeah. in a couple of transactions. What does RV Business Solutions do? Primarily, Jason, we are we are helping RV dealerships buy and sell other RV dealerships. And, you know, Mike Lankford, um, obviously, you know, and my business partner was doing this type of work a few years before I left Winnebago. He had his own company, Lankford Consulting Group. And he was helping, uh, among a few other things, but he was helping RV dealers. And he was just kind of getting started in it and starting to get a few dealers to, to come on board that wanted to sell their dealership. And he was helping find buyers for them. But then about the time I was leaving, well, then the pandemic hits in, in March of 2020, his business starts to explode because RV dealerships are now seeing this opportunity to go acquire other dealerships or a good time to tap out because you know their, their business is rocketing and you know what a great time to sell my numbers have never looked better so Mike you know reached out to me and said hey you know would you be willing to form a company with me and um, and and to help to do to formalize this more just with the two of us and then we brought on an attorney and we got a marketing person but essentially we help we help dealerships you know buy and sell other dealerships so we get calls weekly um, either through you know they hit us up either through our website, and say, look, we're looking to sell our dealership, or we are looking to buy three or four more dealerships. What do you have available? And so, it's, uh, in fact, I leave tomorrow morning, flying to Florida to bring on a dealership down there on the east coast of Florida, and then up a two-store dealership in um, in Alabama and Georgia has two locations that they want to get their dealerships listed for sale. Also, so it's awesome, and I'm able to leverage all the relationships that I built over 30 years. I know just about every person that's anybody in the RV industry and, you know, have built enough of a, a solid reputation that they trust, know, and believe what I tell them is going to be true. And so, you know, if you have a, if you, you know, my own company culture, you know, the, the foundation of, of trust and credibility that I've built for myself carries now way beyond myself. So, you know, third hand um, endorsements are a great thing. And, oh, you should call Scott and Call Scott and Mike, and they can help you sell your dealership. So that's what we do. There's a couple of the small things we do, Jason, but it's basically uh, mergers and acquisitions of RV dealerships. That's awesome, and I definitely know that you, uh, you know, you hear 
a lot about somebody, but when you see it firsthand, I think is the best, you know, proof. And when yeah. I went to that, that uh, breakfast with you and Mike, and there was pretty much the who's who of every single person in the RV world there, and you were a freaking celebrity. So, yeah. you know, if you, you know, I respect the heck out of you. I appreciate, you know, so much of your time. Who are the, just shout out real quick, who are some of the clients that, you know, your clients that you've helped do acquisitions or sell dealerships for? If you, I know that a lot of them are public, you know, I see them all in the magazines. And so I don't know if any, you know, any private, but I know that you're pretty much working with, with the who's who of the RV industry. Yeah, pretty, pretty much everybody we've got. So we've sold dealerships to Camping World. We've sold, it's a, it's a public company, um, RV retailer, Lazy Days, uh, Campers Inn, you know, Bicious RV. So these are the, you know, the, the larger, obviously, Haugen, we've, we've worked with you as well and, and helped you acquire a couple of dealerships. So it's, it's pretty much anybody that, that, that you've heard of that are acquiring other dealerships. We have, you know, we're on a first name basis with them and, and, and they're able to pick up our calls. And that's really, I think, what separates us a little bit because there are, you know, we don't really market ourselves as brokers. I guess if you boil it all the way down, we would be brokering. Um, but we don't call ourselves brokers in, in that we're more advisors and, and consultants. I know that sounds kind of like, you know, consultant speak, but it's really true. I mean, we're, we're, we're not out to sell a dealership to whomever just to, just to get it done. It has to be the right cultural fit for the dealership. And so, you know, the, the camping worlds and the RV retailers and lazy days and so on and so forth, they, we know what they're looking for. We know a dealership that will fit in their world. And so when other dealers approach us and say, hey, we're looking to sell our dealership, we do X million in business, this is where we're located, we quickly can go through our you know, Rolodex, so to speak, and go, that's a perfect store for campers in. That's exactly what they're looking for. And nine times out of 10, we can make that relationship happen. If you don't know this industry that well, like if I were trying to do this in the car industry or boats or you know, dental offices or plastic surgeons or something, I'd have no clue where to start. I mean, I could talk the talk and kind of put the numbers together, but I'd have no idea who to contact. And there are a couple of other brokers that are kind of doing that in the RV industry, and they're good at what they do, and they'll get a few deals, and they're respectable and professional, but they don't, they just don't know the 30 years that I've been in the industry, and Mike is almost 30 years also, all those contacts and be able to just pick up the phone and say, hey, I've got a dealership in Alabama. They do about this kind of volume. Here's what their leadership team looks like. Here are the product lines they carry. Here's the way they market and promote themselves. The owner wants to stay on for two years. And I think it'd be a good part of your team. Are you interested? And they would either go yes or no quickly and we move on. But nine times out of 10, it's yeah, we're interested. And then we put the deal together. So that's, it's a huge benefit. And I saw the light after, you know, 32 years or whatever, working for Fleetwood, then another, my own RV company. And then Winnebago, it's like, you know, time to do Time to you know have a little me time and and kind of run it at my own pace and and, and benefit you know my family and myself a little bit more. That's what we've been doing for the last couple of years, and it's, so far it's been fantastic. That's awesome, man. And I know that it means a lot to uh, a lot of people out there, and it means means a lot to me because you're not you know wasting people's time. And then the core your core belief goes back to culture. If that dealership does not fit them culturally, then you're probably not even going to throw it by their time because it's not no. wait, throw throw it by them because it's not wasting their time. Yeah. And, and, you know, I know it means a lot and that's why I've created a, a great, you know, reputation out there. I mean, yeah. you guys are, you guys yeah. are blowing up. I see your articles all the time in RV pro and yeah. RV business and um, yeah. that's awesome. So the man, I appreciate your time. Where can people find you at? Go to the website, rvbusinesssolutions.com. It's just 
just like it sounds, rvbusinesssolutions.com. Just go there and you can find us anytime. Cool. And I know you got a LinkedIn, right? Just Scott Degnan. Scott Degnan. Yeah. LinkedIn. Yeah. That's Scott Degnan. Absolutely. Same with Twitter. Um, but yeah, for professional stuff, it's LinkedIn and, and website. Awesome. Well, hey, another episode of Culture Camp coming right at you. Thank you, Scott Degnan. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Jason. We'll talk to you soon, bud. Good See luck. Thanks for listening to the Culture Camp Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, leave a five-star rating on your podcast player and share this episode with your team.